Maybe just one more? Hello and welcome to The Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Center at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson. I'm Sophie Dunselman. And I'm Denise Barron. So, since this is the last episode of Season 2, we're going to do something a little bit different. For one thing, we brought our whole team together to look into this topic. But also, we're taking on something that's a little different, a little broader, a little more global than what we usually investigate. From one point of view, I guess I'd say we're, we're looking at information. Modern information. But there's also an element of power and persuasion. Democracy and decision-making. It's global, yet particularly American. It's basically the first real harm the internet has had on elections. But it's not all doom and gloom. We're also going to offer some solutions. And we're going to tell you how the LSE is trying to be part of the solution. We're talking about fake news. Whatever that means. Yeah, we'll get into that. Okay, Chris, where do we start? So, well, let's start with the basic question. So, just what is fake news and who actually creates it? Well, fake news is a wonderful thing for somebody like me who's interested in uh, journalism and media and politics. And who's that? Yeah, my name's Charlie Beckett, and I'm a professor at the London School of Economics and director of the LSE's Truth, Trust and Technology Commission. It's really caught the public imagination And it's made people realise that information really matters, especially when it's misused. The trouble is, as you say, that fake news, uh, which in one sense is, you know, information that is wrong, that is factually incorrect, but has been created deliberately, is on a real spectrum. You can do that for satire, for example. It can be a joke. Uh, Or you can do it to make money. Uh, It it attracts advertising because it spreads like wildfire. Or you can do it uh, perhaps because you're trying to subvert uh, somebody else's uh, election campaign. But, of course, it's now been uh, weaponized by certain people, including the US president, to become a kind of term of abuse for anything that you disagree with. So in that sense, I think we have to sort of stop using that phrase, fake news, and talk about... A more precise idea, for example, misinformation or malinformation or disinformation. So your research must have looked at a lot of fake news stories. Um, Do you have any favorites that were particularly comedic (laughs) or ridiculous or kind of outrageous? The great fake news story that everyone quotes is the one about the Pope supposedly supporting President Trump. But in a way, that's a sort of beautiful one that... um, we could easily find out was untrue. Uh, The trouble with um, so-called fake news is that it comes in so many guises that I've probably read and enjoyed and even shared fake news without realising it because it somehow fitted my perceptions, you know, and it fitted my my prejudices. So I think this is both what we really have to understand about Um, so-called fake news and misinformation is that it's very very popular that we all actually like it and that it comes in very many guises perhaps one of the reasons why you know extreme um, fake news has been less effective in the UK for example might be that we're quite used to 
having journalists, for example, and politicians who are quite happy to sort of bend the truth. Um, so perhaps we're a little bit more sceptical in this country. We've seen various sort of um, fake news um, printed on the sides of buses or printed on in newspapers. So perhaps we're a little bit more uh, resistant to it. So it's interesting you talked about President Trump using uh, misinformation and, and, and fake news. Um, does our political ideology cloud our ability to define and identify this kind of a misinformation? Is Trump's misinformation different to to mine or to yours or to other people's? Well, exactly. And I think this is, again, it's been great news for people interested in media literacy and democracy uh, because it shows us uh, people love so-called fake news, for example. Why is that? Even when they know it might be factually uh, not quite correct, uh, it seems to be uh, very popular. And that's partly because we like to have our biases uh, confirmed. We also uh, are rhetorical in a way and performative. We use words and phrases and stories as part of a kind of political struggle. Now, there's nothing entirely new about this. Uh, propaganda, for example, has been part of politics uh, for centuries. Uh, but what's happening here is that it's being kind of instrumentalized and in many ways amplified by uh, new technologies such as social networks. So let's jump back for a second, because Charlie seems to be saying that fake news or misinformation isn't anything new. Yeah, exactly. And you can go right back to ancient times where people understood that you know the art of rhetoric, um, the art of persuasion, uh, isn't just about having real scientific information. So if you look at the history of journalism, for example, the idea that journalism should be objective and evidence-based is pretty exceptional. Uh, most journalism has been rather subjective and rather partisan. Uh, what has changed, of course, is, is technology and most obviously, you know, the printing press, which was at least part of the whole Reformation uh, and a kind of democratization of religion and science. And we've seen subsequently along come new technologies like radio, like television, and there are both this wonderful optimism people felt that there'd never be another world war because we had radio and we could hear and speak to other people across nations. But of course, radio was also a fantastic tool for uh, the Nazis and Goebbels in, in spreading their messages of hate and division. So we faced these uh, uh, contradictions or these, you know, the, the binary nature of, of media and technology uh, innovation over, over the centuries. What is different, I think, now is that media is so ubiquitous. Uh, it's so much part of our environment, and it's very difficult to think of how we could live our lives uh, practically or politically uh, without doing that through some form of, uh, of mediation. And so it's very humdrum and ordinary, but it's also very powerful. And, of course, where there is power, there are going to be people who will manipulate, misuse information as at least a way of trying to shape uh, and influence people's behaviour. So is this kind of misinformation a problem, or is it simply something that we have to live with as a byproduct of living in a society that has free speech and has, through social media and other sources, a lot of access uh, to information? Well, wherever you have information, you're going to have misinformation as well, aren't you? And this, again, is part of human civilization, But it's much more acute now. Uh, media is so much more... Uh, important, so much more ubiquitous, 
it's so much more part of the way we live our lives as individuals, as communities, uh, you know, as, as states. And so there is a real problem. People are being misinformed and there are real consequences around that. Now, I wouldn't uh, say that misinformation or fake news caused the election, for example, of Donald Trump or the fact that Britain is leaving the EU, or I wouldn't say it's the cause of, you know, the rise of populist parties, but it's certainly a factor in that. And so if you are interested in sort of healthy political discourse, then uh, I think there is a real problem, and uh, and it's not going to go away. It's structural, it's systematic, and therefore... Uh, there is no solution for this. There's only ways that you can try and ameliorate it. So is the, the misinformation, the fake news that we're seeing in the US, is that is it different to what's around in other countries? Or do we see the same sort of problems in American elections as UK politics? You mentioned Brexit and, and Trump and, and France, Germany and other Western democracies. And well, what's again, what's really fascinating about so-called fake news is how it has brought out um, the differences between different markets, if you like, and different media systems. Uh, and also looking at these things historically, you know, the 2016 US elections was a very specific historical moment after you know eight years of a black liberal president uh, with a particular anti-establishment candidate who was very good at exploiting mainstream media as well as social media. And that coincided with a moment uh, in social networks, the, the platforms, and around search, where people uh, had an opportunity, thanks to that technology, to spread messages, and they got very good at it, and they could make money uh, out of it, thanks to advertising, but also because of more sinister forces who were quite happy to destabilize. Now, that fake news uh, tidal wave, if you like, did not seem to wash across Britain and Europe in the same ways. It didn't have... Uh, similar impacts uh, on um, British, German or French elections. Why? A whole load of complicated reasons about our media uh, landscape in, in these countries and our political systems. So there's still a hell of a lot of misinformation around uh, European uh, politics, but it's not the same uh, as what has happened or is happening in the States. So there's been accusations of, of Russian-supported fake news and misinformation, which means this is really now part of international relations. So does the sort of global, international nature of the issue, does that affect how we should understand understand the misinformation? Well, certainly. Um, and I think, again, it, it, it's complicated. We've got definite empirical evidence that, uh, you know, Russian entities uh, have deliberately promoted... Uh, a, a range of propaganda, but also interestingly, just misinformation or highly partisan information uh, that acts in, as a way of destabilizing not just sort of political discourse, but people's uh, trust in media. Uh, if you can spread so called fake news, then people don't trust anything. Uh, and that in itself has a, a, an impact on politics, elections. And the relationships, of course, between populations in different states. So if we don't tackle this kind of misinformation that's going on, do you think there are real risks to, to Western democracies and, and actually democracies elsewhere as well? Yeah, and there are risks in the way that you tackle it. Um, you know, we can sort out all the fake news uh, overnight if we're prepared to adopt Chinese-style uh, censorship and invest Chinese levels 
of money in counter-messaging. Now, I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. We could close down Facebook, and that might reduce uh, the spread of misinformation. But the price of that uh, is abhorrent to anybody who wants an open society. So I think it's partly about looking at ways of limiting the spread. It's partly about promoting uh, good information, if you like. And it's also about uh, enabling citizens to be more media literate, to uh, be able to empower them to both understand and uh, participate in, in this sort of information economy. So thinking about, you, you've talked a little bit about sort of potential uh, ways of tackling uh, this issue. I mean, who, who more specifically is really responsible? I mean, is it policymakers? Is there anything to do with it internationally? You talked about Facebook, you know, Facebook and Google, can they do anything? What what's what's what are the next steps given the the realms of, of the the need for free speech that we do have in our society? Well, I think if you think about information as a kind of public utility, perhaps like water, and you want to improve uh, the quality of it, then now the differences with water, you can go to water companies, governments can set standards. Uh, with information and with media, especially with social media, it's about all of us. It's about news organisations. Uh, taking responsibility. It may be about politicians who are creating content. They've got to take responsibility. And actually, it's about the citizen as well. Uh, they are now active promoters and disseminators and creators of information. So they also have to think about uh, what uh, policies they might adopt and what their responsibilities are. So it's very much interrelated. Uh, and uh, any kind of policy that acts in isolation is in real danger of backfiring. And that's why, you know, with our LSE commission that's looking into this, we're trying to bring together those different sectors and those different actors. And we're asking them, you know, what kind of policies, what kind of strategies will at least move us towards a better information in environment. So let's talk about that commission for a second. What's the name of it again? We, we chose the name Truth. Uh, trust and technology, partly because those are three words which are all very questionable and in a sense quite subject to fake news in their own right. Uh, and what we're trying to do is to bring different sectors together, the journalists, the technologists, the politicians, uh, and also civil society, because we see this as a systematic problem. And we're going to be working uh, talking to loads of practitioners and the public over the next year to try and identify at least an agenda, uh, a policy agenda when MPs are making decisions about new laws or when platforms like Facebook are deciding to invest millions in new ways of uh, changing their algorithms, for example, or news organisations are making big decisions about uh, what they're going to do on social media, for example, are they making those decisions in the best interest of the public and of good information? So we're hoping to put together at least uh, an agenda that's looking forward and tries to get those different sectors to at least talk to each other and come up with both some very practical ideas, uh, but also some sense of a sort of strategic policy uh, that can be adopted, first of all, in the UK, but we hope that will act as a kind of case study that resonates internationally. And sort of beyond these sort of policy recommendations, what can academics do? What can institutions do to address fake news? 
Well, I'm biased, of course, but uh, you know, I do think there's a vital role here for research because we're in a situation where um, this is a real thing. You know, media isn't just like fresh air or the weather. Uh, it's something that's created like any other kind of uh, social situation. So we can have an impact, but first of all, we need to know what the hell is going on. And this is a highly complex field. It's a field that is changing literally week by week with technological innovations, with responses from regulators or politicians, with innovation from uh, media organisations as well. So it's vital that we understand better you know, what is going on. And if you're an individual media user, media consumer, someone who uses Facebook on a daily basis, what what would what should they do? What should they be looking out for? How can they identify and and tackle misinformation themselves, or or can they? The first thing I'd say is, you know, why do you use particular uh, media? Uh, I think first of all, it's just interesting to think about what attracts you to behave in a certain way around information as a citizen. Um, then I think it's about often comparing. Uh, your information practice with other people. Talk about it with other people to see their experience. Uh, and then finally, it's about speaking up and speaking back. Uh, there's a lot more interactivity uh, possible now, thanks to new technologies. And I think that uh, we can have a dialogue, we can have a conversation uh, where people speak back to journalists, speak back to uh, politicians and also speak back to platforms like Facebook or search engines like Google and at least question um, not just what we are doing as individuals but what do we expect, what do we want um, from those kind of media uh, organisations realistically and try and distinguish between you know our ideal, we'd all love to read loads of important intelligent stuff but it may be actually that we also want very exciting, emotional, uh, short-form messages. So I think uh, it's a really fascinating time, and one of the great things about doing this commission at the moment is that the public are really interested. Whenever I go to events, whenever I go and do research, um, people really feel this personally, because, of course, information is utterly personal now. It's there on your, on your smartphone, it's there in your living room on the TV... Uh, and people can sense that this has a real impact on the way they live their lives. I'm now joined by my co-host, Sophie Donzerman. Hi, Sophie. Hey, Chris. And I'm also joined by Professor Sonia Livingston, Professor of Social Psychology here at the LSE's Department of Media and Communications. Professor Livingston is also the chair of the LSE Commission on Truth, Trust and Technology, that we heard about from Charlie Beckett. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So just to begin with, how has the LSE set out to investigate issues of fake news, misinformation, and how that relates to public policy? Well, we're just beginning our commission uh, that's going to run through this academic year, 2017 to 18. And um, we're trying uh, to really bring together a series of experts from very different um, sectors, including MPs, um, journalists, uh, those who speak for civil society, those from the um, 
digital internet industries. Um, and we really want to bring them together around a table and talk about the issues that are so much being debated in the news at the moment. And, you know, being the LSE, we want to bring that together uh, very strongly with a research base. So we have a series of working groups that will kind of support the Commission's work who will be actively researching both what is already known and um, conducting some new investigations to try to get to the bottom of what is a, just an extraordinarily kind of fast-moving and complicated issue. So it's sort of the, the goal of the LSE Commission to sort of influence policy or just to kind of create a research base that can inform others and, and, and going forward? No, we want to influence policy. So we want the research to be relevant to and inform that policy. But the idea is that we... Um, by the end of the year, we have a report which uh, sets out the priorities for action. And some of that work, of course, will be um, intellectual work. I think there's a lot of definitional muddle around. There's a need for some uh, conceptual clarity on what are the kind of key issues and especially how do the different kind of problems as they emerge, you know, the regulation of platforms or questions of fake news or what is the public understanding and what influences them, you know. We want to understand how these different kind of parts are all fitting together. So we want to look at the definitions, we want an analysis, and from that, really, we want uh, to build the recommendations. If I understood correctly from Charlie, the um, the words truth, trust, and technology, apart from being super catchy with the triple mm-hmm. T's, um, that was a very deliberate choice, these three words. Can mm-hmm. you describe that a bit? Charlie said that each of these words are subjective in themselves, which also adds for a kind of interesting layer of analysis. Right. I mean, I like those words because they have an immediate meaning, but they... Um, can mean something different to different people. And Mm. how we draw the boundaries is the kind of thing that um, we really hope to be debating. But uh, perhaps truth is the really core issue, which is why we put it first. Um, And and on on truth, everything else rests, really. You know, without Mm. truth, there is no trust. Um, Without truth, there's um, all kinds of misinformation and uh, misunderstanding that is, as we begin to see, having real consequences in the world. And then, you know, we're the Department of Media and Communications, and we've been arguing that technology matters for a long time. But now, my goodness, it is really on the agenda because the platforms um, and the content on those platforms that um, is disseminating truth news to everybody um, are becoming actors in this process and they're becoming actors in ways that has not really been very carefully scrutinised or regulated or kind of um, critically understood uh, so far. So, you know, the technology is the new bit. Um, we could say we've had challenges of trust and truth um, throughout our information history, which goes back to um, the dawn of time. Uh, but the technologies are changing very fast, and that remixes the challenges for truth and trust in ways that we want to get to the heart of. Just picking up on the idea of um, of history, actually, and, mm. and relevance of technology, do you think that this commission would have been put in place without sort of the way that the Brexit campaign was run or the way that um, the now President Trump's election campaign was run? Because it does seem to be the fake mm. news has really been popularized in the last 18 months, two mm. years, partially because of those particular campaigns and what's resulted. So what do you, what's your thoughts on that? Well, history's always made up of many strands on different timescales. And both the Trump um, election and the Brexit um campaign and, and, and decision have 
brought to the public attention some of the processes and um, trends that have been unfolding over a longer period. I think that's a really interesting question for the Commission to ask, you know, as it were, when when did we have or did we ever have truth and trust? Um, and what is the role of the technology and how mm. far do we want to go back? So one of our strands is about journalism. And uh, one might say journalism has always struggled with this through its history and all of the kind of codes of conduct and kind of expectations of professional objectivity norms for journalists. They've always struggled with these questions. Um, the platforms have really been significant actors in the information landscape for uh, perhaps 10 years. And it's this year that... Um, as it were, we've really seen some of the um, adverse consequences of of what? Of not having um, sufficient public scrutiny, not having sufficient regulatory scrutiny, not having a sufficient kind of public debate. So, you know, uh, not, not to say I um, welcome the political developments of the last year, but it is interesting that that is now putting on the agenda uh, just how effective uh, technology is being in mediating our information. So I know you've, you've done a lot of work on the effects of, of technology and internet on, on young people. Mm. So what are your thoughts on whether or not fake news and misinformation, does it, is it a unique problem for, for young people? And should we be aware of the threat that it might pose to children and how they develop? I, I think uh, misinformation is a threat to everybody and a problem for everybody. I think um, there are two reasons why, or several reasons why, young people are a kind of particularly interesting part of the puzzle. Um, one is that they are forming their citizenship ideas and um, their understanding of the political landscape uh, now. Uh, so this is the world that they've kind of opened their eyes into as, as citizens. And that it means that we can't necessarily rely on the years or decades um, of um, a different information landscape, um, a different perhaps educational system or political system um, that we could say, you know, we can we can hope that many people in the public will have something to fall back on and as a way of interrogating the new information that they get and the sources of that. For young people, they get their news primarily through social media and that's the only way they've ever known. And then I would also say about young people... Um, you know, they are they are the citizens that are going to be on this planet for the next, uh, whatever, 50, 80, 100 years, whatever life expectancy is becoming. So it does really matter how they embark on their kind of uh, young career as citizens. And then, and then perhaps last, you know, there's been a lot of anxiety that young people have been the, um, the missing constituency in our democratic process. And you know, older people might be struggling with the changing news environment, but they are um, often very dutiful and serious citizens and take their voting and information requirements seriously. There's been a lot of debate about whether young people are apathetic and um, not committed. And some of us in the academy have been really trying to kind of push back and say, that isn't the problem. The problem is what bearings are they given in terms of making good decisions about truth and trust um, what kind of education are they giving and most important what ways are young people um, uh, heard and um, uh, invited into as it were the democratic process so that should they when they form their views they that those are consequential and they can gain political efficacy so young people for different reasons um 
uh, are of particular interest, but I think the lessons of the Commission are going to go much broader. Is that apathy a global trend, do you think, that you're seeing in young people? Is it maybe worse in some areas than others? What does it look like maybe even in the United States? Well, I, I kind of wanted to contest the notion of apathy, even though I, I refer to it as the, as the, the um, common perception of young people. Um, I would say um, what is widespread is disaffection and a sense of um, lack of political efficacy, that they're not being heard and so there's no point um, kind of attending. And also that those, um, the politicians, those with the power are not to be trusted, not worth attending to, not not worth engaging with their debates. So I think that is um, pretty widespread, let's say, across the West. I don't want to um, speak globally without... Um, seeing what the Commission is going to um, come up with. And then we see different responses for young people. So we definitely see um, uh, pockets here and there of um, radical youth activism, as some are so kind of provoked, precisely, that they're not being heard to ensure that they are. We see others who are saying, you know, they're just not listening to us. Nothing we say will ever change anything, so we're just going to go and do something else. Um, but I think the majority of young people are there to be educated and included mm. and heard. And, you know, when I do interviews with young people, they are really saying, so come and explain to us, come and talk in our terms, come and talk in our kind of platforms and listen and show us that you've done something with what we've said. And that does mean on our social media platforms, mm. not, you know, in kind of traditional town squares necessarily. Um, and then, uh, yeah, that, and, and I hope that's really where we're going to make some uh, strong recommendations. Do you think there's any challenges in terms of engaging with, with younger people who are sort of the younger millennials? Because a lot of the people who are generating sort of old media people who run newspapers and even some of the tech companies are, aren't their age and they didn't grow up as digital natives in the same way. Do you think there's any issues with communication and speaking in the way, a quicker way, a faster way, a shorter way that, that maybe might present some challenges? Well, um, get over it. <laughs> um, I, I think, you know, A, we concentrate power in the hands of the um, older generations. And then we have the makings, um, certainly in this country, of a really interesting kind of growing generational tensions as, and, and Brexit really kind of crystallised that with young people strongly feeling that older people were making a decision in their interest, in, in the interest of the older, not not of the younger. Um, and then, OK, so there's some practical issues um, of mode of presentation and kind of ways of packaging news. But, you know, we're all moving with the times. I think um, politicians um, uh, and uh, can, can do that, too. Um, so going forward, what should we expect to see from the LSE's Commission on Truth, Trust and Technology? Well, I hope a bit of a buzz. I hope <laughs> some um, engagement. Um, we're going to have some uh, open public meetings as well as the kind of the closed commission meetings. Um, we really want to engage people in the um, uh, the work of the different um, work streams. So uh, we'd love to hear from people who have something to contribute um, or have some kind of new research or recommendations that we should be um, taking into account. And um, I hope uh, some serious debate of around what we'll recommend at the end of the year because um yeah we're gonna we're gonna put a lot into this and we would really love it to be have some consequences um so in your research you must have gone through a lot of fake news and you might have seen some really ridiculous or outrageous things do you have a particular article that really stands out in your mind 
there is one case that dominated um, the last year for many of those working in children's internet safety, and it was called the Blue Whale Challenge. And it went astonishingly viral, and it was a very nasty challenge that um, essentially enticed, supposedly enticed children into spending, um, doing a challenge every day for 40 days, the last day of which the challenge was to kill themselves. And this challenge went everywhere, and we had head teachers writing home to parents saying, um, don't let your children play this game. We had parents calling um, helplines and services. We had politicians making speeches about how there should be regulation, and it was all fake. There was no game, and what there was was a clickbait. Uh, we eventually tracked it down uh, somewhere in Russia, one of those kind of farms producing clickbait thought this is a brilliant way to get attention, and it did. And it was remarkably hard. So I know in the internet safety community, which includes um, colleagues um, in, um, particularly in Bulgaria, who read who read Cyrillic, who read Russian, um, they had to do quite a lot of detective work. The Russians finally arrested those people um, to stop them doing it. But in this country, we had perfectly serious head teachers. We had. News in the Daily Mail, We ha I had all the journalists ringing me, Wired magazine fell for it, everyone. And because it was quite hard to track down and because it played into all our fears about horrible things happening on the internet, enticing children, um, and people didn't know how to investigate. So that's really so pernicious. It's not mm. outrageous things about... Um, what was that like child pedophile ring in the pizza parlor? You read those right. kind of things and your automatic reaction is yeah. like, this can't possibly be true. Yeah. But something like that, like they've really manipulated it yeah. to appear so true. And it seems like an evolution of the ice bucket challenge. And if you think this is called yeah. a challenge exactly. and it's got, exactly. and, and I think yeah. a lot of parents don't really know what's going on with their children's yeah. lives anyway. And so it kind of takes every single possible box. It was very clever and it had a very clever visuals in which you have a, you know, kind of on, on the skin of your arm, you see the cut of a <gasps> blue whale with kind of blood and it was all, and this image went every, it was just, it's all fake. So, so no, no children actually did this challenge. There wasn't a challenge for them to do. Oh, the game what? didn't exist. Number one, number two, no child did it. But what, sadly, there was, was a, um, um, some every now and again a child who does commit suicide, hmm. who had been on the internet, and then the the claim kind of came up. Oh, they must have been playing this game. Right, and. Of course, then there's always a delay and everything is so horrific when a child does commit suicide. Um, and you know the computer's been taken away and the messaging just goes crazy. And then just to add a kind of last spin to this story, um, there was so much news about it that so many people started looking for the Blue Whale Challenge on the internet that various sites started popping up and various YouTube videos were added saying, well, I've played it and like this, or this is, you know, my advice. So it begins to generate its own adverse consequences just because people believe in the, in the fake news. But then it becomes less fake, right? When right. people are actually engaging right. with it, it crosses the boundary yeah. Yeah. into, I mean, yeah. what's, what's the term for that? It, actual news seems like a bit of a hyperbole, but... Is that what we can call not fake news now? Real news, well, actual news? Um, fake news has its own um, real consequences. Hmm. Yeah, and it generates its own kind of news, absolutely. And it, um, it distracted a lot of people, it panicked a lot of people, um, and panic has adverse consequences. Hmm. Yeah.
Um, well, that's all we have for time for today. So thanks for joining us, Professor Livingston. It was a pleasure. Thank you. So that's it for this episode and this season of The Ballpark. Thank you to Charlie Beckett and Sonia Livingston. The Ballpark is produced by Denise Barron. That's me, with contributions from co-hosts Sophie Donzelman and Chris Gilson. That's me. And also with help from the LSE's annual fund. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. They're the cat's pajamas. The bee's knees, etc., etc., all that. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Center nor the London School of Economics. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your support during our first two seasons. Stay tuned for season three. For season three. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Uh, that's it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>